KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. The one thing you can't do in this city is be fake when it comes to basketball. I think you'll get exposed very quickly. As a player, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be embarrassed. I want to make it known that if I do lose, we're going to be the hardest out that you can ever imagine. And that's all I want to try to do with the team that I coach now. And our guest this week, Newman University head men's basketball coach, Jim Rulo. Coach, thanks for taking the time. Matt, appreciate it as always. So obviously things are a little crazy as we are recording this in early December. What's life like for you? Are you able to have contact with your kids? Uh, you know, how how are you getting through this? Yeah, we were we were able to do a little bit of a pod system for about three weeks stretch. And then about a week and a half ago, right before Thanksgiving break, uh, we were shut down. So there's obviously challenges that, that we're facing. Right now, our focus is with our players finishing up the semester very strong academically. And then we're hoping to get word, hopefully through our conference uh, mid-December with a game plan for our second semester. So we're holding out hope that we'll play some sort of an abbreviated schedule once mid-January, February rolls around. How are the kids handling it? Are they taking it? It's got to be tough on a lot of levels, adjusting the online stuff, missing what they love to do. and. Uh, just kind of seeing the world turned upside down in front of them. Yeah, I mean, I, you really feel for them, uh, 18 to 21-year-old guys that uh, they're there, obviously, to get their degree, but they're also there to fulfill that intercollegiate athletic experience. And uh, you, you can tell that just from their body language that they're they're chomping at the bit to get on the floor and do what they love. But at the same time, I give them credit because they they, they understand it and they've they've adhered to the uh, the guidelines and they're doing what they're supposed to. But at the same time, they, they, they are a tad frustrated. But at the same time, all in all, they're, they're in good spirits. So let's now talk a little bit about your career. And I mean, I knew this anecdotally, but doing some research growing up, what, in Gray's Ferry? Uh, yes. Sports, a huge part of your life uh, as a kid, right? Oh, it was it was everything. It was a, a tremendous place to grow up. I was fortunate to be the son of Eileen and Jerry Rulo, who were Philadelphia basketball or icons that that taught me the game, uh, taught me how to compete, exposed me to an awful lot of great people that gave back to the community, and it was just a a great place to grow up with wonderful people. Was basketball? the first love sports wise, or were you a kid that played whatever was in, whatever was in season? Yeah, multiple. Uh, I think as time went on, uh, baseball and basketball took priority. Uh, my, my father played for the Philadelphia Warriors. His brother, Joe was the second baseman for the Philadelphia A's. I had another uncle, my godfather, my dad's side was a professional boxer. So, uh, I was exposed to an awful lot. And, uh, uh, but to, to answer your question, uh, basketball and baseball were were primarily the two. But at the same time, I, I love to watch football. To this day, I, I'm a huge football fan. I, I love the Eagles. But uh, basketball and baseball for me kind of uh, took priority after, I would say, like that 12 to 13 age. You mentioned your dad playing for the Warriors. He won the title. He was on the team that won the title, what, 1946? 
Yeah, first NBA championship team. And the, the funny thing with that is after that first championship team, he got traded to the Baltimore Bullets. My dad was afraid to fly, and uh, actually the Bullets won the championship that second year. But halfway through the season, there was a, an episode on a plane where uh, inside the inside the vestibule area, one of the stewardesses left a napkin on a burner, like the coffee burner. And I guess the uh, it, it filled with smoke and they had to make an emergency landing. And, and right after that, my dad stepped away and played in the Eastern League. But the Bullets wind up winning the championship that year. So he would have been on the first two NBA championship teams if he wasn't afraid to fly. <laughs> How old were you when you realized what your dad did? Like, I mean, I think whenever I talk to people who's, you know, there's a, they're your dad, but was there a moment when you realized like, wow, he won a championship. Like he plays in the NBA. And I know the NBA then wasn't what the NBA is now, but was there a moment you remember the recognition of, of, of the accomplishment? Not, not really. Like I, in a, he was a very humble guy. Like he, he, he worked in the department of rec after his, uh, his playing days for 33 years. So he's always the guy that was well-respected in the neighborhoods and uh, around the city because he also was an official after he got done playing. So he, I, I just knew that he knew a lot of people. And then it was funny. I think my brother and I were clowning around in my parents' bedroom and uh, we were going through, sniffling through his drawer. And in the back of his nightstand was his championship ring amongst like all this just stupid little jewelry that he had. And we're looking at it. We're like, wait a second, that says championship at, and that's when it kind of resonated with me anyway, that, wow, this, this guy must really know what he's talking about because at the time he would take my brother and I to 16th and Jackson, fourth and Shunk, And we, we would play one-on-one -on -one and he would be the designated passer and, and he would put us through workouts. And we just always knew him as dad because he was, he was very humble. Like he, he never really spoke finally of himself and he always passed credit along to others. And he was very appreciative of, of the relationships and friendships that he had throughout the city through the game of basketball and through sports. So you talk about baseball, basketball, what are your memories of your, of playing those sports, junior high, high school? What, what comes flooding back? Uh, yeah. A, a lot of similarities that I just talked about with my dad, just being surrounded by a lot of good coaches a lot of good teammates. Uh, I remember growing up in Grace Ferry and and being asked to play in the men's leagues when I was younger. Like we would go to Southwest Philly, and I, I can remember Harvey Sumner, Bob Sumner, also known as Andy Harvey for those radio guys. Uh, but he would take me as a fill-in if guys were playing softball or playing in a, another men's league, and they were short guys. They would they would grab me from the corner. I, I can remember going to McCreesh Rec. And um, they're like, hey, Jimmy, you may play today because these guys are running late. So I was like, oh, man, this is kind of cool. And I remember going to the table to check in. And the big thing was just, just make sure that when you get there, just tell them you're Eddie Higgins because obviously I wasn't on the roster. So I, I get to the scorer's table. They're like, who are you? And I'm like, um, I'm Eddie Higgins. And uh, – plays going up and down and like, who are you again? And I'm like, I'm, I'm Eddie Higgins. And the horn blows and, and I go in and the guy at the table, again, my dad department of rec for 33 years, he goes, all right, Jimmy, tell your dad, Mr. Rulo, I said hello. And I'm like, how did he know who I was? 
unbeknownst to me, I forgot that I was wearing a jersey with Rulo on the back of my shirt, which uh, which led to a lot of laughs. And then when I got home, and this is before cell phones, and this is before Twitter and all that stuff. Of course, when I walked into the, into the house about nine thirty that night, my dad had already gotten the full story from from his cronies out in Southwest Philly. So. The good thing is my dad knew everything or everybody. The bad thing I, is that I couldn't get away with anything growing up because word traveled pretty quickly. But what's that? That's got to be a, a wonderful feeling of community that uh, a lot of people, I think, you know, don't really experience anymore. Yeah, it's it was I often talk about growing up and, and, and having those experiences and not changing them for the, for the world. It, it's kind of like the Bronx tale slash Hoosers slash Goodwill hunting, like going to the palestra and, and running into 50 people in the restroom and, and, and you know everybody and, and walking around because we, we had a system. Everything was a system. Like we wouldn't park near the University of Pennsylvania because obviously it was just a, a madhouse on a double header. So we would park over near, which is no longer there, the Springfield beer distributor we would walk over south street bridge and then we would walk behind franklin field and we would come in the palestra the back way and we would obviously sneak our own pretzels in and there's a whole there's a whole process to this but but doing stuff like that and i look back on i try to share, i have two daughters right now and, and and i try to share those experiences with them and we'll go to the palestra as much as we can as long as it it doesn't interfere with with our schedule uh but it's just something that it, it when we do, when we do that as a family, it, it just brings back so many great memories of Penn Princeton games or or double headers. And, and the one one great gift my brother and I got uh, for Christmas one year, it was a New Year's Day or January 2nd. It was a split double header. So it was like an afternoon game and then you would have to leave and then you have to come back to the Plester for the night game. But it was and I'll never forget. It was Notre Dame with David Rivers versus Penn. And then you come back that night and you had Lionel Simmons versus North Carolina that night. And it was just, it was a tremendous day of basketball. It was, it was a lot of fun. So you go to Drexel, you walked on right after you go, you went to Malvern prep for high school and then you decided to go to, was the, the plan always to, to walk on or was it something that you needed to play and saw the opportunity? Well, I had a good high school career under a great coach at Bud Tosti at Malvern. And uh, again, I was playing basketball and baseball, and I was fortunate enough to get recruited for baseball. And at the time, for at Drexel, uh, Eddie Burke was the basketball coach, and I had won the, the, the Markwood Club or the Markwood Award that year. And uh, I was getting recruited by a lot of Division three schools. And, and, and for me, I, I just always – Again, growing up where I grew up and the experiences that I had, I, I always wanted to find out if I was good enough to play at, at that level. If, if, if I tried and I was like, wow, these guys are super athletic, they are super skilled, and I found out that I didn't belong, then you know what? I would be just as content because I'd be like, wow, these, these guys are, it's pretty impressive at that level. So I didn't want to look back and say, I wish I would have done that. And and what happened was uh, I was able to walk on with Coach Burke uh, for that freshman year and, and things were going well. I, I didn't play much at all, but it was on a Division One roster and you were getting to travel and you were getting some great experiences and you were meeting some great people. And then, unfortunately, 
he got fired that 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 spring. He wasn't retained, and, and Coach Herring came in for that for the last three years of my my career. But there's a lot of funny stories that that go along with that process because here I am sprinting. When Coach Herring got got hired, it was during baseball season, and um, he didn't know me from Adam because obviously I did. He's looking at the stat sheet. He's looking at the roster. He's looking at Rulo. He's like, "Hey, this guy brings nothing to the table." let him go. He's, he's dead weight. So, uh, I remember coming from a, I had to sprint down Palatine Avenue because at Drexel, the fields are about eight blocks away from campus. So I'm running through to catch our first basketball meeting at, at seven o'clock and I'm, and I'm huffing and I show up and our first meeting, he looks me dead in the eye and says, listen, I don't know who you are, but this is my opportunity to be a head coach at the division one level and I don't see any value in walk-ons. <laughs> so, so that wasn't too promising. My first meeting, like, you look, I appreciate the honesty, but it was a, it was a reality check real quick when, when I had, when I left that first meeting with coach Harry. So how did, how'd you prove yourself? How'd you stick around? So what happened was the, the, he, the way he laid it out was next fall, he, he would give you, he's like, I'm going to give you three days of practice. And, and the story goes that, uh, and I, I get this from the assistant coaches who I'm very good friends with right now, like Walt Fuller and Steve Seymour, uh, they would go down into the office and, and like any good staff, they're evaluating, they're watching film of practice and, and they're going through the entire roster. And, and coach Seymour tells me, he's like, Jimmy goes, every time we go down there, he's, he's like, look at Rulo. He just, he just does this. He, He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't turn the ball over. He makes his free throws. He knows who he's guarding. He executes the game plan. So he goes through a list of about 10 things. And, and again, all the 10 things or 15 things that, that my dad preached to me at 16th and Jackson and 4th and Chunk. So everything that I knew and how to play the game, I was just executing from all those years of, of listening to my dad. And uh, three days turned into, we're going to give you another two or three days. Basically, the way coach Seymour describes it is he was just waiting for you to mess up so he can just discard you. And fortunately for me, it turned out where I think we were coming to our first exhibition game that year. And two guys ahead of me, Michael Thompson may have tweaked an ankle and there was another guard that may have been sick, which kind of allowed me to play extended minutes in that exhibition game almost by default. And fortunately I did pretty well, which gave coach, some more confidence. And then before you knew it, I was playing 25 minutes a game. And uh, at the end of that sophomore year, um, we got to the NCAA, we got to our conference finals and lost to Delaware at Delaware. But at the end of that year, he brought me in and uh, he offered me a scholarship, which was, which was awesome because it just validated everything that I was taught by my dad, my mom, and, uh, and it, 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 it kind of just let me know that, that I belong at this level, or at least I could perform at this level. You talk about that exhibition game and obviously the moment when you get the scholarship. Do you feel personally inside during that whole stretch that I belong? Like, or did you have any doubt or were you just a kid playing basketball, doing your best and having fun and, and not thinking about it in the big picture type of terms? 
No, I, I, I mean, I was, I was focused on the task at hand. Like I, I knew that, and I think this is what's great about the game of basketball. And, and, and there's a lot of parallels between me as a player and me as a coach with some of the teams I've had is that in this area, there are tremendous athletes. There are tremendous basketball players. And the one thing uh, amongst many that, that my dad always taught me and my brother was you could be effective. You just have to do it in different ways. Like first and foremost, control the controllables. Always be in shape. Always listen. Always know what the coach is talking about so you can in turn execute it. And then he took it a step further and, and taught us the art of competition in the sense of knowing who you're guarding, left-handed, right-handed. Is he quicker? Is he bigger? Is he stronger? So as you're going through a game and there's substitutions and there's all this stuff going on and the fans are like, you're just isolated at the task at hand. And it, it, it actually made things a lot easier for me because Coach Hurrian, although from Worcester, Massachusetts, and also the the son of a basketball coach, he spoke the same language. Like he he understood that there were multiple factors that can influence a game. And the good thing for me is we had some my that sophomore year we had a group of four seniors that that actually I when I look back on it allowed me to just do my thing. Like I didn't have to score twenty five points. I could make my open jump shots. I can know who I'm guarding. I can take off. I can take charges. I can execute what's going on. And uh, I didn't have to be the main guy. That wasn't who I was at that level. But at the same time, it allowed me to be very effective and a complimentary piece to those guys that were, that were a little bit better. So you had a lot of success at Drexel and the team had a lot of success. What uh what are the memories game wise personnel wise of your time playing at Drexel? Yeah, like uh, we won a lot of games. We played in three consecutive conference finals. Uh, we got to the NCAA tournament. Uh, obviously, playing against guys at Hartford like Vin Baker, uh, playing in the NCAA tournament against Aaron McKee and Eddie Jones. Uh, th- those were the moments that that made that kid from 29th and Tasker, like looking back on it, I can remember to this day, like we were, were down. The only bummer was that we played Temple in the tournament and we played them down in Maryland. Like, like I always thought like when I was down at Lanier playground and I was imagining like shooting that free throw to win the game or hitting the buzzer beater and getting to the NCAA tournament that I would be out in like New Mexico and that first round game at 12 o'clock. And, but, but we played John Chaney's team that obviously guarded the hell out of you and, and made things frustrating. We competed. We didn't play our best game, but obviously they had three pros. But I can remember coming off the court and there maybe about a minute left in the game. And and the way it was, was across from our, our benches was our Drexel contingent where they gave the uh, complimentary seats and for family. And I, I can just remember looking at my dad and looking at my mom. And although we're down 15 and the game's over, I had a huge smile on my face because I knew this was the culmination of all that hard work. And to look over at them and them to give me a thumbs up on the way back, I, I knew the ride was, the ride was worth it. it. It was, it was everything that I talked about. And, and then when you look further into it to this day, uh, the friendships that I've had 
and still have with the guys on my team and the SIDs like Jan Giel and the assistant athletic directors at Drexel. It, it was just a family atmosphere that that made all the success worthwhile because you were sharing it with a lot of people that also had that same vested interest. It was it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun because the group that we had was selfless. Even though you had Malik Rose who went on to play in the NBA and win championships at that level, Malik Rose was just one of the guys. Like he was he was a guy that led by example and wasn't pretentious and still isn't pretentious. I mean to the fact where the last two summers before COVID, uh, he he was with the Detroit Pistons as the assistant GM, and he brought me out to Vegas as a, like a an honorary assistant coach. Thinking of me as far as developmental reasons to me to grow as a coach, and and, and he didn't have to do that. But but looking back on it, that that's that's what we are. We're friends, and and to provide me with that opportunity is is pretty cool. I think twenty five years removed. So am I correct that you didn't initially get into coaching out of college, that you started, you went into sales? Yeah, I mean, obviously with Drexel, with co-op being a good, being obviously, uh, I think a pretty good academic school with a great reputation, I was able to get in with Mobile Oil. Uh, I did that for a few years. And uh, at the same time, I'm bouncing around and playing in men's leagues. And, and I, I helped out at Malvern Prep, just giving back when I could, but there was something missing. Like it, it was, it was obviously, I, I don't think I could be defined as like a corporate person. Uh, I, I look back and this is where I think I have a lot of parallels with my dad. Uh, he had opportunities and, and my dad really liked giving back. He liked giving back to the kids and the families in our neighborhood. And he, he got a lot of self-satisfaction out of that. And, and I kind of fell into the same suit I think I, I enjoy coaching I enjoy the competition selfishly but but I enjoy connecting with kids from North Philadelphia South Philadelphia families from Wilmington Delaware in the area I think what coaching does and what sports does and what basketball particular does in this city is the one thing you can't do I don't think in this city is is be fake when it comes to basketball I think you'll get exposed very quickly and I think when you when when you talk back about like what I was thinking, I, I as a player I was like you know what I'm not going to be embarrassed like I I can't be embarrassed like that like it wasn't so much that I I could, do I have to score 20 points it was like I I want to make it known that if I do lose or if we do lose with my we're going to be the hardest out that you can ever imagine our teams were always well prepared at Drexel. We always understood time and score and situation. And, and that's and that's all I want to try to do with the teams that I coach now. Like I, I think there's a lot that you can learn from understanding that maybe, you know what, talent-wise, you don't all pass that eye test. But I think if you have a group that buys into the team concept uh, of being selfless and, and being coachable, I think that's what makes the game great, especially in the city, because like when I was at Malvern Prep, I mean, I was coaching against Dan Doherty and, and Speedy Morris, like we were division one coaches when I was at Malvern Prep coaching. Like, you you, you got to bring it. You got to be well prepared. And if not, you're going to get embarrassed. So what, where's the opening to get into coaching? Was the, is it Hobart? 
Yeah, so uh, uh, Bill Harian, it's Bill Harian uh, at the time, a real good friend of his was Steve Clifford. They worked together at BU, and then they worked together again in East Carolina. But what happened was Steve Clifford at the time was just getting done at Adelphi on Long Island, and a, a guy named Rich Roach uh, just got the Hobart job late, like in June or July, and um, he was looking for an assistant. And at that time, I had decided to leave Mobile Oil, but I, I, I knew I wanted to get into coaching, but I didn't, I didn't have a job. And as fate would have it, I was golfing with Coach Harry and Coach Clifford on like a Thursday or Friday, and uh, that following Monday, I got the opportunity to to interview with Coach Roach, and uh, I was up there for two years at the Division Three level up at Hobart, which was a again a tremendous experience, and that's how I got my foot in the door uh, at the collegiate level. What was the biggest transition to coaching? And you're pretty. What are you? Twenty five, twenty six. At this point, how difficult is it to be a coach that's relatively close in age to the players? You know what? It, 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 they, they did their homework. They were smart kids up there, so they they understood. They knew my story before I even got up there, and so they, they I had some street cred with with them. And and I think once they met me and they they understood that I was uh, on their side to how how to make them better. Because I'll be honest with you, athletically. And even some skill development wise, I mean, a lot of these guys were, they could, they could do what I did. Like I was, like I said, what was the difference between me and them was, was not much. I mean, I had the opportunity to be coached by a tremendous guy in coach Harry, but I also had that foundation from my dad. So all I was trying to do was impart some of those things we talked about before of, of how can you be most effective in this game? So if, and when that opportunity comes for you, you're ready. And I, and I think they appreciate that. I think they, they wanted to be coached and, and they wanted all the trade secrets. And I'm, I'm more than happy to, 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 to pass that on to them and, and, and give them all the help. But the, the biggest challenge for me was being exposed to the time commitment, the recruiting after hours, the recruiting calls, the trips. So if you're practicing from three to five in Geneva, New York, how do I get to Albany for a 730 game? I leave practice early. So you needed to work on your organizational skills and, and work on your communication skills and, and how to identify and evaluate talent was, it was, that's where all that kind of became evident for me. Did you know right away though, that this was where you needed to be not Hobart, but coaching in general? Yeah. Like I, I just knew I enjoyed the competition selfishly, but, but I enjoyed being around the same kind of people that, that wanted to compete and, and wanted to get better. And, and I, I love giving back. Like I, I enjoy, I enjoy telling stories about my dad to people because the, inevitably it comes down to a lot of the questions that you're asking, like, how did you do it? Like you were six foot two, you really couldn't jump. You're not that quick. Like, and, and I look back on, I'm like, I was, I was very, very fortunate. I was very fortunate to be, surrounded by a, a great group of teammates, a great coaching staff. Uh, but at the same time, I like to think that I did put myself in a position to succeed. Like, so it was kind of the perfect storm. A lot of it was ignorance. Like a lot of it was just like, Hey, like I said before, I'm going to try to make this happen. If it doesn't happen, so be it. But then once I got kind of indoctrinated into it and 
it was just something that I, I needed to be a part of. And, and right now, like my wife, she played at Drexel, uh, and, and, and I got the support from her and my family, like to, to make this move. And it's been a great ride because of the people that you surround yourself with. And I think when, when a lot of people look back on their lives and, and you're able to have positive experiences with, with people at that age, it has a long lasting uh, effect on you. And it, it's pretty powerful. Time for a break here on one-on-one. We will have more with Newman University men's basketball coach Jim Rulo right after this. And we are back. Our guest this week on one-on-one Newman University men's basketball coach Jim Rulo. Do you remember when you started to think that you wanted to be a head coach? I mean, everybody wants to be a head coach, but I mean, when you started to think you understood the challenge of everything that goes into it and I, I think I might be ready to, to, to have my own program. Yeah. Like, like I went for the Malvern job uh, and, and things worked out there. And, and other than the Hobart assistance job, it's been, it's, I've been the head coach, but, uh, and I often tell my assistants, like I have a vision, but the head coach title is just a title. Like I, I solicit feedback and, and I've had a group of selfless guys that have helped me, but, but, but again, getting back to what I was able to achieve as a player, all I've done was implement that same strategy and philosophy as a coach. And now the trick is how do I connect and communicate that effectively with, at the time of Malvern, 16, 17, 8-year-old kids that the question is how do they measure success? Is it on an individual basis based upon personal accolades or do they want to be part of something special and maybe put some of that stuff on the back burner and hopefully have some banners up before they graduate? So that, that was, that was a challenge. And, and uh, fortunately for, for me and my staff, we were able to do that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I think being a head coach is awesome. And then when we had a success at Malvern, uh, the Newman opportunity came up and, I think I was one of about 85 applicants and I, we kind of worked my way through that process and fortunately uh, was offered that position seven years, eight years ago. When you take over at Malvern, is there extra pressure because it's your alma mater? I think it's one thing to get a head coaching job and, you know, if you're coming somewhere new, but you've got a rep at Malvern prep people know who you are they know your story does that add any pressure or does it make it easier because you're walking into a familiar situation I think I think it's a little bit of both to be honest with you like you wonder because Malvern's always been considered very good basketball football lacrosse school and then basketball or I'm sorry baseball football lacrosse and basketball was okay some years not so good some years because then you had the like the Germantown academies of the world that kind of solidified themselves as a, a staple in the city and kind of, and Penn charter at the time had some good teams. The way I looked at it was I, I used it as an advantage because I, I, I did have a lot of relationships with a, a lot of people still out there at Malvern, but at the same time, I, I thought that we could be a little bit more creative and a little bit more forward thinking with what we were trying to do. And, and the one thing with Malvern is and I was able to connect with guys that were better at other sports that wanted to be part of just the program. Like guys like 
Ryan Nassib, who went up to Syracuse to be a quarterback. Uh, Carl Nassib, who obviously is doing real well with the Raiders. Phil Goslin, who's with the Phillies, was was my first year. Like he didn't play hoops his junior year, but I was able to get him from his senior year because he wanted to be part of it again. Uh, uh, Paul Ostick, who went up to Cornell. Mike Francisco, who went to Villanova for baseball. So you had this group of of guys that had focus on another sport, but were still very more than serviceable basketball players that we were able to just draw upon to to accept their role and 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 want to be part of it, which which really helped because they were guys that were just leaders. They were guys that just didn't care about their personal accolades and they just trusted the coaches. And it it made for a very, very good experience when I was there for seven years because I had kids like that that for the most part were were from great families and 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 were very, 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 very selfless kids. So when you make the jump from Malvern Prep to to Newman, you talked a little bit about the the process, but was it a situation where you heard about the opening and it interested you, or had you kind of made the decision, I would like to try my hand at the college game and we're looking for the right opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think it was like, what's like always looking, not always looking for the next challenge, but things were working well at Malvern. And, and again, we had success. I think in the seven years we finished in the top 10 in the city five times with the one year we finished number two. Uh, so we had some really good teams and it was a lot of fun and, and, and playing teams like St. Joe's Prep and Speedy Morris and guys like that. So it would have had to been the right situation selfishly for me to want to leave. And and then when I, I submitted my stuff to Newman, it was under the guise of, well, let's see where this goes. Sort of like the Drexel basketball, baseball scenario that I was dealt with, with Coach Herring and Coach Burke. Uh, because I didn't want to look back and say, hey, I wish I would have applied for that because I think it could have been interesting. And and to be honest with you, I think in this area, again, we have tremendous Division One basketball with the Big Five in Drexel. We have tremendous Division Two basketball with the Sciences and Philly U and, and all the state schools like Westchester and PSAC. It, I mean, and the Division Three was, I think, where you really – and this is where I think you do a great job of trying to get the word out about it. There's a lot of great basketball. And then when I was going through the interview process at Newman, I, when I, I, I think I did a phone interview and, and then they brought me on campus and I was blown away by the facilities. And then I was thinking selfishly, I'm like, well, wait a second, if this comes to fruition, like, where are we? And I'm like, wow, Delaware's right here. South Jersey's about, 15, 20 minutes right over the Commodore Barry. You can still get into Delaware County. You can you still get into Philly. Because, and then you're looking at the facility. You're looking at what the school has to offer. And then I'm like, wow, th- this could be something special. And, and, and that's how I looked at it. And, and, and what happened was I think you just need to accept where you're at and, and understand how you could be effective in, in recruiting the student athletes that, that want to be a part of that. And fortunately, we've been able to to bring in some good kids that that buy into that same philosophy. Biggest challenge going from a head high school coach to a head college coach? The time. 
like I said, the recruiting aspect, obviously it, 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 it kind of, at the time I was at Hobart, obviously I was single. So obviously when the, the, you talk about the division three world, there's a, a lot more behind the scenes that I think people are un, unaware of. There's a lot of time away from family, especially around the holidays, because you're, you're not only playing your season, but you're also trying to get on the road and maximize the time to get out to see kids play during Christmas tournaments. Uh, so, so I knew that would be a challenge, but at the same time, I, I'd like to think I try to be effective and creative on, on how I spend that time. And I'm not afraid to utilize my network. And what I mean by that is being a player, like I said, 30th in Tasker, 4th in Shunk, uh, 25th in Diamond, um, playing at Malvern, playing at Drexel, um, coaching at Hobart. What you do and what you realize is you have a pretty solid network of people that can help you. And, and they're always looking to help their own players at the high school level. So what happens is I, I try to be creative and tap into those resources. And and what you start to realize is it develops a pipeline for you. And, and, and it, so you're not spinning your wheels going out and evaluating players that you know are not your kind of guys. And so you try to be efficient. You try to be effective. So um, I, I, I think – I think it's a challenge, but I think it's uh, it's the art of evaluating and, and trying to be creative at the same time. Because I, I think when we all look at the Cameron Reddishes of the world and the guys like that are that are can't miss guys, there's this whole undertow of kids that may be a little bit slow in developing or aren't playing on the right AAU teams or maybe are playing baseball like Jim Rulo did back in the day and they weren't on the summer circuit. So I'm always trying to keep my eyes and ears and keep my mind open to kids that may be late bloomers because guess what? Everyone can't afford the $700 to go to a hoop group camp. So how, how can you still relate to those families that still want to get that secondary education and uh, have that great experience playing intercollegiate athletics? So when you take over at Newman, what was, you talked about the facilities and stuff like that. What were some of the first things you wanted to do to put your stamp on things? How did you approach taking over the program? Yeah, I, I think when you you look, I think when I took the job and the first thing you're doing is you're looking at their roster, you're looking at the stats, you're looking at who's returning, you're looking at where opportunities lie. Like where can we be effective? You're looking at film and saying, hey, can this car, can this guy be a little bit more effective doing X? And um, and then hopefully. Uh, you, and I got the job late. It was like the end of June. And like, hopefully maybe you get a kid or two that uh, is flying under the radar a little bit. And uh, unfortunately, we were able to do everything. We had a kid, Reggie Coleman, from, from Trenton that came in. He was three years and he didn't play much. And that year he came in and he was second team all conference. I got lucky with a kid from Wilmington, Delaware, that was still I think he was planning on going to St. Joe's as a preferred walk-on, but St. Joe's brought in a, uh, a European player, which relegated him to not having a spot. Next thing I know, I got Deshaun Lohman. Deshaun Lohman winds up being our all-time leading scorer, uh, COSIDA Academic Player of the Year, and he was right down the road. And I got him because his AAU coach called me up and said, Coach, I'm offering this to everyone in the area. 
We're having workouts at the Wilmington YMCA on Sunday. And it was like maybe right around July 4th. And there was one guy in the gym and you're talking to him. And what I'm saying is it's, yeah, did we get lucky? We absolutely did. But I'd like to think that we put ourselves in a position to grab them because we were willing to get up and, and, and do that and take that trip and, and things worked out because then what starts to happen is real good players are friends with real good players. And then maybe you get a friend or two or buddy that, yo man, why don't you wind up coming over here? Because we, we have some good things going and it starts to snowball for you. And that's what we try to do because inevitably I think the good programs, just like we had at Drexel, the players start policing each other. They understand what the, what's required in the classroom as being a good citizen on campus and understanding how to compete when we step between the lines. So I think all those things are, are what makes athletics great. And again, in the game of basketball, we're not looking for 25 players a year. If I could bring in three or four guys that are impactful and understand our language and our culture, I think we can coach them up to be effective players at this level. So you've had a ton of success at Newman, a couple of uh, conference championships, a couple of NCAA tournaments. You had that one year, was it 16-17, where you guys were just phenomenal, 25-3. and three. You host uh, the first couple rounds of the NCAA tournament. You've been in the NCAA tournament, the Division One level as a player, a couple of appearances, the Division Three NCAA tournament as a coach. How does the feeling, the experience differ from the player standpoint and the coach standpoint of getting to the, the, the top of the scale there and playing in the tournament? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I, I think when, as a player, you're just doing your thing. Like there's just, like there was, we didn't look at it as, as pressure. It was, it was like the culmination of all, all our hard work. But as a coach, there's two things that I remember. Uh, the first time we beat Cabrini to win it, uh, and then the second time, I think we'd be, we, we'd be Gwinnett at home. Uh, in both occasions when we won the conference, go to NCAA, I made it a point to take a step back as the celebration was going on because I wanted the players to just enjoy the heck out of that. Because as a coach, you worry about so much more than you ever did as a player because now I'm responsible for what possibly can go wrong with this kid or, or how's this kid thinking. So your mind's racing, but, but as a, as a player back at Drexel, I was just locked in again at the task at hand and I wasn't exposed to the entirety of what the program was all about, if that makes sense. But as a coach, when we did get over that hurdle and we did achieve our goals, it was important for me to allow the guys to just be euphoric and enjoy that moment because to see guys that have been able to get to that point and I can relate as a player, it's, it's, it's powerful. Not many, not many players get to play in conference championships. Like I, I'm very blessed. Like I said, we won two at Malvern. I got to play in three as a player at Drexel. And in seven years at Newman, we played in five conference championships. So the, the challenge is how do you sustain that? And are the expectations realistic? But, but when you do get over that hurdle, to see the kids and to have that organic reaction is what, again, you ask me why I get into coaching. That's why I get into coaching. 
because it could be uh, a, a Billy Cassidy from Delaware County. It could be uh, Darian Barnes from Penwood. It, it could be a James Butler and Andrew Moy from North Philadelphia. Like that, that's what connects us all. Like we're all different, but at the same time, when we're in our program, we're all together and, and all those biases and everything that makes us different in a great way makes us all one. And, and not to get too crazy, but that's, again, is why I look at my dad and his experiences because we can go to a Sunny Hill game. I got Sunny Hill coming up, oh, Jimmy, Jimmy and, and asking about my dad back in the day and you just get instantly like amazed by how powerful basketball is in the city of Philadelphia. And to that point, I obviously know the answer to this, but day to day, how much does it mean to you to be a part of the Philadelphia basketball community, the conversations, the memories, the, the network? I mean, because I've said, I don't think there's another city in the world basketball wise like Philadelphia when you put the the quality the quantity the the characters the personalities the history it's really it's it's something that there's no parallel I don't think no it's uh it's 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 funny there's a guy that I work with that lives up in Long Island that's a total hoop head and from Missouri to the point where we made it a point for the last three years he takes a train in the 30th Street Station and I take him to a high school game, uh, take him to the palestra, and we just have a great time just going around the city. And he's like, New York's great, but it's nothing like this. Uh, and another great story is last year um, uh, at O'Hara. And O'Hara is playing Roman Catholic. It's a Sunday afternoon Philadelphia Catholic League game. And what I tend to do as best I can is I, I take my two daughters along with me as much as I can. And... Um, Again, it's a who's who, who's in the crowd. And my, my youngest daughter, Megan, is a little bit more outgoing than my oldest. And uh, we get in right a tip and it's like you got to cram your way in and you're sitting next to whoever. And and then during the first time out, my, my daughter taps me on 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 the leg. He's like, yo, dad, coach, coach France here, coach France here. I'm like, yo, Meg, go over, go over and say hello. And uh, she's gotten to know Coach Dunphy very well. And uh I'll tell you a quick story about that afterwards. But but anyway, she runs through the timeout. She runs along the sideline, down the baseline at our hire, and Coach Dumpf is sitting way up top. And she goes up to him and says, like, Coach Dumpfy, do you remember me? And he's like, yes, I do. You're Megan Rulo. She's like, my dad wants to know if you would like a Coke. Would you like a pretzel? Because we're going to the concession stand before, before the rush at halftime. And, uh, of course, Meg goes, gets him his Diet Coke and his pretzel, and Coach Dump tries to give her money, and she goes, "Yeah, your your money's no good here, Coach Dumphy. We're we're all in this together." And uh, to the point where Meg has Coach Dump's cell phone number, and this past Thanksgiving last week, she texted him, "Coach Dump, just want to wish you and your family a happy Thanksgiving." So that kind of encapsulates it for me. Where to your question, I think, yeah, I love to be a part of it. But I also take it a step further where I think it's my job to kind of in a weird way is to pass that down to the next generation. And that's what I'm trying to do because both my girls love basketball. They play for 
uh, the Comets, and we get to meet another whole entirely group of great people on the girl side, which I, I, I truly enjoy too. So, but the one quick story, a, a tidbit is Coach Dumphy's mother, okay, lived in Grace Ferry. Her last, her maiden name is D. Domenico. D. Domenico's lived right down the street or on the same block, three houses down from the Rulos on 34th and Grace Ferry. And there's, uh, so when I would see Mrs. Dumphy back in the day after I got done at Drexel or when I was at Drexel and we would go to see Penn games on a Friday night because maybe we played on a Saturday. We just wanted to kill some time after practice. I would always make it a point to go see Mrs. Dumph after the game. Of course, only after a win. I didn't want, I wouldn't go over after a loss, but I would give her a kiss on the cheek and we would talk about the, the glory days back in, in Grace Ferry. But that's a, a little tidbit that the Dumphies were the D Dominicos and uh, my father was very good friends with uh, Coach Stump's family. All comes full circle. It's really amazing, yeah, it does. isn't it? Yeah, it does. Jim Rulo, this was great. Thanks so much for taking the time. Man, I appreciate it, man. Have a great holiday. And that will do it for this week's episode of One on One. Want to thank Newman University men's basketball coach Jim Rulo for being our guest. If you like this show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, why don't you leave us a rating and a review? Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon1060. Thanks again for listening and tune in again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.